welcome to the Chichester Festival Theatre Podcast. We'll be talking to a whole host of guests from our staff here at the theatre to our cast and creative teams from our productions. I'm George Bailey and I'll be your host for this series, taking you through everything Chichester and theatre related. So sit back, relax and enjoy what we've got in store for you. Joining us today is uh, a man who needs no introduction at all, Michael Morpurgo. Big welcome to you, Michael. Nice to see you. Thank you. How are you? Are you okay today? I'm good. As I said, I had a good breakfast. I did that for the sound check, and uh, it was excellent. It was nice to walk through the lovely streets of Chichester and be here. Fantastic. So lovely to have you here. And um, so jumping straight into the butterfly line, where did this story come from? What's the kind of inspiration behind the butterfly line? Like most books, there are many, many roots. Um, the first route is one of these lovely accidents. There's a book festival, a place called Hay, which I go to from time to time, and you go walking through the town, it's full of bookshops. Walking past a bookshop, and in the window there was this book. And on the front cover was a picture, a photograph, of a white lion. Now, I'd never seen a white lion before, I didn't know they existed. The title was The White Lions of Timbavati. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And I went into the shop and asked the man, how much is it? And he said, four quid. And I bought it, and it was the best investment I've ever made, really, because it was full of these amazing, amazing photographs of white lions. And actually what it was was a study that someone had done over a period of 10 years about a pride of white lions in South Africa in a place called Timbavati. But the photographs were beautiful, so that was the first thing. Second thing was I had the same book on my lap coming back from Paddington to Exeter on the train, And coming into a station, a place called Westbury, if you can imagine this, I had the book open, full of these white lines, turning the photographs and loving it. And then the the, the train did what trains always do, it stopped outside the station. And I did what all people do when a train stops in the middle of nowhere, you look out the window. So I looked out the window and on the hillside there was this white horse carved out of chalk. So I thought, well, that's strange. I looked back at my book and I was going, white lion, white horse on a hillside, white lion. And I knew then I was going to somehow write a story about a white lion carved out of chalk on a hillside. I had no idea where I was going to go with it. I knew nothing about lions. And then again, it just got luckier and luckier and luckier. Next thing that happened was uh, I met in Dublin in a lift I was sharing going up after I'd been at some sort of conference, I met a lady who I knew when I was young that I had been in love with, but I couldn't remember her name. And that's quite awkward. And I just, as the lift went up and up and up and up and up and up, I suddenly remembered who she was. She was an actress called Virginia McKenna, who had been in a film called Born Free, which a lot of people know. And I just remembered her in that film, and everyone who saw her at that time was in love with her, though everyone was, that was it. I wasn't particularly out of the ordinary in this respect. But I had to say something to her. Here was the love of my life in the lift with me. So I said, it's really nice to meet you, and I think, I didn't know what to say, and I think, I was like a 15-year-old, I think, um, I think your, your Born Free Foundation's wonderful. I mean, really sad. Luckily, the woman didn't scream, and she said, it's really sweet of you. And I went out the lift and then I went to my bedroom and I thought, that was so stupid, so ridiculous. And I was a book on my bed. 
and I thought, I'll recover this situation. There's a book called The Dancing Bear, which is all about a bear in a cage, and the Born Free Foundation is all about not keeping animals in cages. So I thought, C -c 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 I don't know what to do. And so I signed it to Virginia McKenna, Love, and I meant it, Michael Morpurgo. Took it downstairs, because I'm shy, gave it to the man in the reception, said, could you give this to Virginia McKenna? And I flew back to England, that was that. I got a letter from her a week later saying how much she loved the book. And if I ever wrote a book about a lion, please let her know, because maybe she could help. So I suddenly thought, this is so good. Everything is just falling into place. But I had no story, no story, no story, no story. And I go to a dinner party, one of those really boring dinner parties, where there's always someone louder than anyone else. And this man was seriously loud. And he, I don't know how the conversation happened, but we were all somehow exchanging stories about grandfathers. And he just thought, oh, my, my, my grandfather, he was in the First World War, you know. And I thought, oh, lordy. Here we go. But I listened, and I'm really glad I did. And he said, my grandfather went to the war as a very, very young officer. He was 18, and he found himself in the trenches. And he got lucky, because his second day in the trenches, he got wounded. A shell fell quite close, and a bit of it went into his leg. And so he was taken out of there, taken to a hospital 30 miles behind the lines. And there he recovered. But no antibiotics. Life was very difficult medical-wise. They made him take exercise, and he went into the... Um, little village, a mile down the road, a kilometre down the road or so, and he was sitting there one day, sipping his coffee or his wine, and he suddenly heard shooting. Well, hang on, the war was 30 miles away. So he, what's going on, what's going on? He got up and he limped into the square, and there was a circus drawn up all around the square. Cages, cages, cages. And there was this old man with a gun shooting into the cages, and he killed already most of the animals. And one of the animals left was the old circus lion. And the young soldier was outraged. He went up to him. He tore the rifle out of this old man's head and said, what are you, what are you doing? He said, these are my animals, my family. I can't feed them anymore. No one wants to come to a circus in the middle of a war. There's no straw for them. There's no hay for them. There's scarcely any water for them. What else can I do? And he said, in a great passion, you are not shooting that lion. And I said, well, you, you look after the lion. I can't look after that lion anymore. So the true story is they took this lion, the two of them, out of the cage and they walked down the village street to this sort of, sort of chateau place at the end of the village, which was a British army headquarters where the general lived. And anyway, people came rushing down the stairs, what's going on, what's going on? And the young soldier said, sir, this is a lion. This Frenchman wants to shoot the lion, doesn't want to, but has to, can't look after it. This lion is the emblem of Britain, we're at war. We should say this line, and the general or colonel or whatever it was said, yes, yes. So they sent that line back to London. That line lived out its life in, uh, in London. And I thought, hang on, this is so wonderful. I'm going to set my story in the First World War. Problem. I wasn't alive in the First World War. This will surprise quite a lot of children. Uh, but it was a really, really, really long time ago, and I'm not over 100 years old. So you have to somehow get back to the beginning of the story. And so I wanted a way of getting back to an earlier time. And I thought about it and thought about it, and a memory came into my head. And memory is a part of a writer's armory, really. And memory is the most important. It's the most important asset we have, where we've been, what we've done. And the lucky thing was that when I was a little boy, at about seven, I was at a boarding school in a place called Sussex, funnily enough. 
And I ran away from that boarding school because it was horrible and I wanted to be at home and I missed my mum. But my home was in Essex, 100 miles away from me. I have no idea why they sent me to Sussex, but they did. And uh, anyway, I decided one lunchtime I was going to run away. And I put my hand up in the middle of lunch and said, please, sir, can I go to the toilet? They said, yes, Morpurgo. So I went out of the dining room, I didn't go to the toilet. I turned right, ran down the polished floor, out of the front door, and I started running. I'm seven years old, it's pouring with rain, and home is 100 miles away. So I started running and running and running and running, went out of the big school gates, turned left. And I knew if I was caught, I'd be caned, because that's what happened. You got beaten in that school if you did anything wrong. So I just ran and ran and ran. This car came along, and um, there's an old lady in the car overtook me. I had to stop. So she wound down the window, and there was a dog there. And she said, what are you doing? And then she answered the question. She says, you're running away, aren't you? And you're from that school up the road. You've got a uniform. I said, yes. She said, well, you can't. It's raining. And where's home, dear? I said, Essex? She said, well, that's miles away. Get in the car, get in the car, you'll catch your death. So I got in the car, and we all know, never, 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 never do that. But it was then, it was an old lady, and I was really scared by now at what I'd got myself into. And she took me back to her home, I was soaking wet, she sat me down in front of her stove, took my wet shoes off, put them in the oven, took off my blazer, and hung it up to dry. She gave me a sticky bun and some hot tea. And she said, what are we going to do with you? What are we going to do? I'll take you back. I'll take you back to the headmaster. It'll be fine. I said, no, 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 don't, don't. And she said, I'll, I'll contact your parents. And no, 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 they'd be just as angry. So then she said, I've got a good plan. I've got a good plan. She thought about it a bit. She said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to drive you back when you're all warm again. You finished your tea. I'm going to drive you back, not to the gate, so that people will see you coming, but just to where the trees are by the road, and you can run in through the trees into the grounds, and, and you've only been gone an hour, no one will know you're missing. And that's what she did. And that woman saved my life. But she was a very old woman, and one thing she did do while I was there, is there was a photograph on the mantelpiece, which I remember really well, of her late husband, who was in uniform, and he'd been in the First World War, and he'd been killed. And she talked about him. That's what she talked about when we'd eaten our sticky buns. She talked about the man on the mantelpiece who had been very brave. And she was saying to me, and you can be brave, can't you? You can be brave. It had a huge impression on me, this story. So I thought, that's what I'll do. I'll begin my story with this boy running away. So then I sat down and wrote The Butterfly Lamb. Mm. What is it about this tale in particular that you think lends itself well to a stage adaptation? Well, I'm, that's up to the people at the Chichester Festival Theatre to do. I mean, the wonderful thing is, I know it's a, a story that some people have read and some people love. And some stories like that work on a stage. But the only reason they work on a stage is because of the genius of the people who put them on stage. That lots and lots and lots, I can't remember, a dozen or more of my books have been made into plays. And very often they're not that successful. Because it's not easy to translate a, a book. And if you do it too literally and you put it on a stage, it feels like a book on a stage. It can't be that. It must be a play. And I've read the script of The Butterfly Lion. And what I know is there's a marvellous playwriter who's not just reproduced the play and put it on the stage. What she has done is to use what the stage can offer. And what does stage offer? It offers, in a sense, the same thing as a book. In the, whoever's watching has got to make a leap of imagination, not into print, but into live people playing out the story in front of them. 
and, and touching upon as well the different elements that, that come into it. So obviously Dale Rooks directed um, Running Wild back in 2015. Yeah, that's why I'm here. Yeah, very successful. Uh, and I'm here because my daddy acted here. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, my daddy acted here oh, way back in the 1960s. He was an, an actor and he did a one-man show on the, on the stage there for about a month. Oh, wow. um, so when I tread the boards here or come here, I know I'm treading where he trod and I love that. Mm. Fantastic. So Dale Rooks, yes. Dale Rooks, yes. Um, so are you excited to see what she's going to do with this tale this time around? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, last time was an extraordinary adventure. And I have to tell you, last time I was really, really worried because she was taking this play, this story, Running Wild, and she wanted to, and I knew she was very, very honest and straight about it. She said, what we're going to do, this is going to be an outreach program to get as many kids involved as possible in the making of this play. I said, fine. She said, and we're doing it in a jungle somewhere outside Chichester on a hillside. I said, fine. And I was then seriously worried, you know. A hundred children in a jungle. And we've got amazing puppeteers, she said. Same puppeteers who had been involved in Warhorse. And I thought, well, that's all right. They'll make good elephants and good tigers and stuff like that, which they did. But I really was worried because I hadn't been in a performance which moved as it was being told. And they took the audience, 250, 300 of us, with the players through the forest. There was a scene here, and then he walked on another five minutes, then there was another scene, and then there was another scene. I thought, this is nuts. It's never going to work. But you've got to go and see it, because a lot of people put a lot of effort into it, and I like Dale anyway. But I didn't think it was going to work. So we came, and we stayed in Chichester, and we ended up there. It was an amazing, amazing evening, and it was one of the best theatre evenings of my life, in the sense that something that looked so completely impossible she and the company had made work. It was just extraordinary. And uh, so much so that I stayed another night in Chichester and went to see it the next night as well. I've never done that with any play. Uh, it, was, it was very, it was arresting, it was moving, and it was ingenious. The whole thing was ingenious. And then these kids were at the heart of it. And that's, and coming back to what I said before, all these children somehow have been so well, trained isn't the right word, They'd been led into this story and into what, what part they were going to play in this story so well that I was watching them sort of walking off to go into it. And they were all in their zone. They were absolutely not chatting away like a bunch of kids. You know, they were, they were already in their parts. And I thought that was just extraordinary. It was persuasive before it started. And while you were watching it in the jungle there, music and there were sort of butterflies around and all sorts of wonderful animals climbing down from the trees. It was just wonderfully ingenious. So when Dale said, well, let's do something else, and, and I said, well, The Butterfly Lion would be wonderful. Um, apart from anything else, it's quite a popular book, so one or two people might come, but also you'd do it wonderfully well. It was lovely she was doing something different. It's in the Minerva I know, and it's, um, I've seen the cast, not met them, but I've seen who she's chosen, and that looks, that looks wonderful. So, or we, I haven't seen the puppets yet. Presumably there's going to be a lion at some stage or other, unless the budget isn't there, in which case we'll probably have to imagine the lion. But that's fine. It adds to it, it's fine. That's it adds to it, yeah. You can declare to the audience, look, the budget finished, we've got the actors, that's fine. Imagine Africa, because that's expensive. Sussex we can do, and uh, yeah, puppets, so we can't do the lion, no, no lion. Watch the space. Watch, Watch the space, space yeah. Um, and so also, as we said, so many of the younger audience coming to see the show will have already read the novel. What do you hope they'll take away from the stage version as opposed to the novel? Oh, I love the theatre. That's, what, that's what's wonderful about this. I mean, getting in the, these the numbers of children that are going to see it, you know, amongst the thousands that are going to come, 
there are going to be many, many who will be converted to theatre for life. Well, what are we trying to do with these children? We're trying to give them an insight into the power of, of music and dance and drama, um, to give them a fascination early in life, and also to give them the confidence that they can do it, they, could, they can take part in these things. And there will be some of them who will end up working for theatre. It'll be the changing moment of their life. And I know this because it happens with books, exactly the same. If you give the right book to the right child at a certain moment, life completely changes for them. They become not just book readers, but maybe bookmakers or book illustrators or book designers. That is sort of what happens. I just met, this is really weird, you're asking this question. I just met a lady out here who I think is quite connected to the, to the theater, uh, herself and her husband. And she came up to me and she said, um, my son wrote to you many, many years ago when he was a little person, and you took the trouble, she said, to write back at length. I don't remember, of course I don't, but I was really pleased I did, because we went on and talked about him, and what does he do? He's in publishing. So he loves a book when he's seven or eight years old, and the pathway begins and he ends up, and he's a publisher. And I love that. I love the fact that it opens doors for people. That's what the art should do. It makes you think when you're young, it makes you want to reach out for more, yearn for more, yearn to be part of it. And, I mean, one of the reasons I'm here is that I really want to be an actor. You know, I'm 75, it's a bit late. But I really love theatre because of the life that it brings to, to stories. I'm completely fascinated by how it's done. And I would love to be seven again and go to a theatre, which I didn't do at all when I was very, very young, because it was just post-war and there weren't any. I went to a circus once, but there wasn't much, and there certainly wasn't much for children. Wonderful thing about... Um, the world today of the arts is more and more there, are, there is wonderful quality stuff for children. So this is going to be the supreme one, I think. Mm. And what I hope, actually, with the stories is that they're going to be enjoyed by young people and older people. There are many, many older people in my stories. It is absolutely true at the heart of the story. There is almost always a child. Why? I think because, to some extent, I missed out on childhood. I was sent away to this school. So childhood became really important to me as I got older, which is bizarre, but it did. And I'm fascinated by childhood. I love the spontaneity of it, the fact that when children live their days, they're very often seeing things for the first time, feeling things for the first time. I also know the difficulties of it, the sense of isolation and loneliness. And particularly now, in the dark times, I think they suffer more than we think because the adults around them are not feeling good about themselves and children pick up on this. So I was quite sensitive about all that. I was a teacher for eight years. And uh, father, and I'm a grandfather, I'm a great-grandfather, I really quite like children. And so I think they're in my books a lot, but I don't write for them. But it is important they're just stories for everyone. Um, and actually the, the best compliment I, I get paid sometimes is some um, child who writes me a letter. In fact, it was one about the butterfly lamb uh, a couple of years ago, wrote to me and said, uh, our teacher, Mrs. Hindley, I think she was called, read us the butterfly lion and she couldn't finish it because she was in bits. So I finished it. And I thought, well, yes. Two things. First of all, he got to finish the story. Second, the teacher was as connected to the story as they were. So you're not doing it for them, you're doing it with them. And they feel it's a real thing. This is not a, a lesson, it's a story. 
and the teacher, or it could be the parent or the grandparent or the auntie, it doesn't matter, is as involved in the story as you are. Therefore, it's not a patronizing thing, you know, it's a thing you're doing together. And this story in particular, I don't know why, seems to have hit the mark that way. And that's an interesting thing about stories. You do not know which one is going to hit the mark, and that depends, of course, on the child. It's horses for courses, children for different books, and just as it should be. Some children do ask me, why don't you write more fun and laughter into your stories? What's all this war and death? And so you have to answer, and they mean it, really, because they, they are offered a lot of jokes and funny, and there's, you know, it's, it's... And that happens a lot in children's books, I think, that the, the, the writer might think, or the publisher might think, well, if we'll make it a little vulgar and a little rude, then it'll get children to laugh, and that's great. Well, laughing is fine, but so is crying, because it's all part of who we are. And what one mustn't do is avoid the difficult things with children, because they're living, their lives are as difficult as ours. So you look them in the eye, and you tell the story as you feel it, you never talk down to them. And what I loved last time about Running Wild, and go back to that really, is this was a play which was being crafted for everyone. Yes, there were a hundred children involved, but it wasn't just because of that. It was because these people were creating this extraordinary story, and they happened to be smaller people, we call children. But it was good enough to rise above this is the thing for children. Um, and I'm sure this will be too. Mm. I'm sure it will be. And just to sum up as well, finally, if you had to sum up in a sentence why you think audiences should come and experience the Butterfly Lion, um, what would that be? Well, I think come and see the play, the story, because of the people you'll meet in the story, because of the places you'll go in the story, because you will feel what you've never felt before. You'll go back in time and you will feel sad one moment and joyful the next moment. You'll go through all the range of human emotions whilst you're watching it. And you'll have been to Africa and it will not be on the television. It will be the theatre making Africa on the stage and you doing the rest. You're going to breathe in the air of Africa. So it's this combination of what the theatre is giving you and what you're giving back to the theatre and you're making this thing yourself. You are part of the story. So go and see it. Become part of the story. Find out what happens to the lion and to the boy and to the girl. And um, you'll walk out of the theatre having lived through an extraordinary experience. And you'll have come to Chichester and you'll have watched it on the stage where my daddy strode many, many years ago would just come for that. Just imagine my father. He looked a bit like me. If I put my hat on, <laughs> I'm exactly like him. That's it. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's been lovely chatting to Looking you. forward to it hugely. So are we. So are we. Fantastic. Thank you. This has been the Chichester Festival Theatre Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Please do like, rate, share and subscribe on all relevant social media. And we hope to see you at the theatre soon. As always, thank you for listening and we hope you look forward to the next episode.